Welcome to the Passive Income Through Multifamily Real Estate Podcast, brought to you by APT Capital Group, where Kyle and Lalita talk to top experts and seasoned passive investors in the business to help provide clarity and key insights to keep you safe on your journey to financial freedom. Our goal is to help you get educated on how to create passive income for you and your family using real estate as your vehicle. If you enjoy the show, please go to iTunes and leave a rating and written review to help us grow and reach more listeners. Now, here are your hosts, Kyle and Lolita. Hi, everyone, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Passive Income Through Multifamily Real Estate Podcast. I'm your co-host, Lolita, also joined by Kyle. Before we get started, please make sure to head over to our website, aptcapitalgroup.com, and grab our free Passive Investor's Guide. Also, if you're interested in learning more about what we do, you can schedule a call with Kyle on our website as well. All right, time to get into our show. Today on the show, we have Chris Benson joining us. Chris, glad to have you here. How's it going? Doing great. Thanks for having me this morning. Awesome. Before we get started, here's a little bit about Chris. Chris is the Chief Investment Officer for Reliant Investments, which is a subsidiary of Reliant Real Estate Management and was named one of the top 30 commercial self-storage operators in the U.S. in 2018. Investing in real estate has been Chris's steadfast path to passive income, and he is passionate about inspiring others to change their mindset around investing for their future. Great stuff. Today, we're going to take a deeper dive into your portfolio. But first, Chris, can you go ahead and tell the listeners a little bit more about yourself and what you currently do? Sure. I'd be happy to. So thanks for having me again. I'm Chris Benson, as you mentioned. As far as myself personally, I live here in Roswell, Georgia uh, with my wife and two sons. One's 18, one's 14. So as of this recording, we're in the midst of the coronavirus and they're pretty much driving each other crazy being stuck in the house together, as you can imagine. My past been an interesting one, Lolita. I've come from a sales background originally. That's what I did out of college. Did a number of different things in the sales environment. And then when I was about 28, 29, I started to realize that um, you know I, it was a path that I didn't see myself following for the next 30 years. So I needed to find a way to uh, start to replace some of my income and put myself in a position where I had a bit more freedom. And that's where real estate came in. For me, my path was kind of unique in that I started in one asset class. Uh, we, we ended up starting with uh, residential real estate, so primarily duplexes, those types of things. That I realized very quickly that was not very scalable, and I hated it, to be quite honest with you. It wasn't my favorite. And I heard or read, and I, I wish I could quote who said it, but a podcast or a book that basically said big deals and small deals are the same amount of work. You just make less money on small deals. And uh, for me, that was kind of the eye-opener of, okay, I should probably be getting into you know multifamily. And that's what we did. We sold all the duplexes and gave us a little bit of capital to start and ended up building a 64-unit apartment complex, which is kind of a long, drawn-out story. So I don't know how long you want my intro to be. But as we did that, that was kind of when the bells went off for me as far as understanding how commercial real estate worked and you know, the income potential that existed there. And we invested in passively in a, a number of uh, multifamily properties across the country. And then as cap rates have sort of compressed in multifamily, uh, about three years ago, we started doing some research into other asset classes. And that's what brought us to self-storage. And, uh, you know, there's a bunch of data regarding the performance, uh, both historically and what self-storage does in a economic downturn. And that's what brought us to the asset class and to Reliant. I started as a passive investor in Reliant and 
that relationship grew and essentially we've created a partnership with one of the managing principals and now I'm a CIO and I moved my family to Roswell and it's been a uh, quite an adventure. So I know there was a lot of talking all at once, but uh, hopefully it gives a good snapshot. A lot in a nutshell. So thanks for that. <laughs> sure. All right, perfect. Well, let's get into self-storage. Can you maybe talk a little bit about first why you really like this asset class? Yeah, for sure, Kyle. I think I'm a data guy, right? So for me, there was really three things that stood out as I started to do some of the homework in storage. And let me preface everything I'm saying by this is all pre-COVID information. You know, I think the next six months will have an interesting dynamic on what this data looks like post-COVID. But you know, the first thing I look at is historical performance and, you know, coming from the multifamily space, which I know you guys have some you have exposure to as well. Obviously, apartments have performed very well historically. There's an interesting database called the National Association of REITs, N-A-R-E-I-T, that you guys could probably link in the show notes. But in there, you can see a historical reference of essentially every asset class that exists in the publicly traded REIT space. So I just started comparing what looked good and what had done well over the past 25 years. And storage, interestingly, had done just under 17% in the publicly traded REIT space. You know, and even comparing to some of the apartment REITs, which was closer to 12, 13% than office retail, storage had outperformed almost all of them. So that was a good start. And then, you know, secondly, the next thing I want to understand is uh, what happens in a downturn. I'm a big believer that pretty much everything has happened already and you just have to go back far enough to see it. So, you know, understanding another recession was coming at some point, I wanted to see what asset class would perform well. And storage in 2007, 8, 9 in that same data set lost less than 4% of its value. Apartments, it was closer to 7 You know, retail and office got hit in the double digits. Obviously, the S&P 500 over that same time period was down, you know, 22% plus. So, you know, you have high-level performance over a long historical period. You have some good downside protection. And then the last thing, and this is what really stood out, was the market is very fragmented as far as the ownership is concerned. So, you know, 70%, well, let me take a step back. There's five publicly traded REITs in the space, companies like Extra Space and Public and CubeSmart. And some of your listeners, if they're driving in their car, probably see those sites off the side of the highway. They own about 20 to 25% of the market. And then the remainder of the market is really very fragmented as far as ownership. And there's still a lot of mom and pop, which I would define one or two sites, mom and pop owners. And what that provides is a consolidation opportunity. Really, you know, for those of you guys who have some private equity backgrounds, a roll-up strategy where you can put together a portfolio, manage it professionally, and look for some potential exit, either to publicly traded read or, or institutional capital. So for me, that was the big thing was, you know, the three reasons, obviously, the historical performance, what it's done in the downturn, and then that upside consolidation opportunity. Yeah, most people refer to self-storage as a recession-resistant asset class. Can you elaborate on that a little bit more? What is it about that asset class that makes it recession-resistant? I'll tell you in six months. <laughs> we'll know for sure then. Well, Kyle, I mean, I think, so let's talk about 2007, 8, 9, and then I can speak to what's happening right now. As we're recording this, it's the beginning of May, so we're just starting to see what the impact would be. But I think the reason is a couple things is, you know, one, we are a business of change, right? So demand for self-storage is driven by change. So if you're being downsized, if you're getting divorced, if you're moving, if you're changing school districts, all of those things create demand for self-storage. And typically, 
in an economic recession like 2007, 2008, lots of those things were happening, right? People were downsizing from a house to an apartment. Well, they didn't get rid of their stuff. I think it's two things. I think it's one, you know, hope for a better day. People believe that there's going to be a time that they're going to need that stuff. And so they don't want to get rid of it. And, you know, the second part of it, I think that's very relevant is it's a small percentage of their take-home income, right? So if you look at, you know, rents for multifamily as a percentage of total income, you know, depending on what market you're in, but that could be 20, 30, 40% of income, you know, self-storage rents are a whole different world. It's a much smaller dollar amount. So I think people will see it as a, a minimal impact to their monthly income. And what we're seeing now with the COVID-19 is April's collections have been very strong, both in our own portfolio. And then if you look at some of the national data from the publicly traded REITs, we've seen a pretty minimal impact. May has started out well. I think we're all kind of every asset class is waiting for the shoe to drop in May, but so far so good. Our collections look really strong. You know, a big part of this too, Kyle, is a significant portion of our portfolio is on auto pay. So it's like a gym membership, right? You just get charged and unless you're really paying attention, you know, that fee gets taken out of your bank account. And then the last piece that I would mention is you're essentially collateralizing your rent with stuff. Right. So, you know, I'm sure your listeners have heard of Storage Wars, that TV show where they auction off storage units. Well, that's what happens if people don't pay their rent. Right. So, you know, most people don't want to lose whatever they have in the unit. And so they're collateralizing their own rent with the things that they store in the units. And I think all those factors, you know, combine to make it somewhat recession resilient. Again, it'll be interesting to see what happens over the next, you know, 90 to 120 days. Yeah. What's the standard length of time that a resident will keep a, a unit? So it depends. Uh, remember, the leases are 30 days. So different than multifamily, obviously, where you have a you know 12-month lease, typically 30 days. It depends on the market you're in. You know, I would say that a residential tenant is somewhere kind of in that 18-month range. A commercial tenant usually is longer than 24 months. But it really is market specific and who the demographic is that's using the storage units. So, you know, I would say, you know, a little bit up in the air, but generally that's data that, that we feel pretty good about. Okay, great. What are some of the difficult aspects or challenges when dealing with self-storage? Yeah, I think I probably just hit on one of them is the 30-day lease is tough, right? So the good news with 30-day lease is you can really change your NOI very quickly. The bad news is you can really change your NOI very quickly to the negative side, right? So, you know, your revenue streams are based off move-ins, move-outs, and and storage has a distinct seasonal nature to it. So we have a peak leasing season from, let's call it April to September, where majority of people are doing their moving or changing school districts or whatever the case may be, and it creates that peak demand for self-storage. And so, you know, managing revenues month to month especially in the slower season where you can have a dump out of people can sometimes be challenging. I think it's a little bit unique in that it's very much an operating business first with a real estate component. So, you know, digital advertising, the marketing component, you know, competitive price sets are super important because everything is fluctuating on a 30-day window. Is there a sweet spot with the size of self-storage? Uh, you know, with multifamily, you've got 100 plus units, 250 plus space. That's kind of where your money starts to really work for you and you get that leverage and scale. How about for self-storage? I think, Kyle, it depends on what your exit is. 
right? If you're looking at the lens through the exit of, you know, selling to your institutional capital, then there's going to be a certain size unit that they want, right? That they're going to be interested in purchasing. We just sold a 14 property portfolio to one of the publicly traded REITs just in the beginning of March. And, you know, I think there's a certain square footage that I would say probably 50,000 square feet plus in a unit mix of climate controlled versus drive up, you know, a non-climate controlled unit just means it doesn't have air conditioning or heat. And then a climate controlled unit means that it does, you know, the REITs, if they're going to be your exit strategy, you want to position the asset so it's an attractive asset for them to purchase. So I would say for us in our particular portfolio, that's the exit that we look to. So, you know, typically I would say, you know, this isn't an absolute rule, but probably 50,000 square feet or more. Or if it's a smaller facility, it has the ability for expansion. And we believe we can go and create some expansion to create that institutional class asset. And what are the typical ways that you add value to self-storage properties? We put in hardwood floors and granite countertops and stainless steel appliances. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit different than on the multifamily. It's certainly, it's a garage, right? So there isn't a absolute answer, at least for our strategy. We look at every asset opportunistically. As I mentioned before, sometimes it could be a mom and pop operated store where there may not be an expansion opportunity where we're going to go out and build, but potentially it's just managing the property better, right? I can't tell you how many facilities we take over that have never charged rent increases to in-place tenants, right? And so just professional management may be the value add. Sometimes it's adding ancillary income items. Reliant is the largest U-Haul dealer or one of them in the United States other than U-Haul itself. So adding truck rentals, things like tenant insurance, late and admin fees. We have a retail component in our offices. So things like locks, boxes, you know, moving blankets, those kinds of things. All those things are ancillary income items that many times, especially if it's been a family run type of business, nobody's capitalizing on that. And then, you know, typically the more typical value add may be we're going to put shovels in the ground, right? Where, you know, we may have a facility that's cash flowing and we're going to build an additional, you know, 15 to 20,000 square feet of climate control units with the idea that we believe the market's undersupplied and we think we can grow NOI through that expansion. So really, Kyle, I think it's strategy specific and market specific. We look at every asset uniquely, make a decision on where we think we can grow the most value. How about for rent increases? Since you're only on a 30-day lease, how often do you give rent increases? I hate to keep giving you the answer. It depends. <laughs> but it's usually how long a tenant is with us is where the rent increases come from. You know, we're typically underwriting somewhere in the neighborhood of 4 to 5% a year in our pro formas. So, you know, if you're renting a unit for $100, that means at the end of that first year, you may get a rent increase of $4. So, you know, certainly in the old days of self-storage, you know, call it the good old days, sometimes those rent increases were double digits, which was crazy. Now the market's become much more competitive. You obviously, you know, there's too many choices for people to leave if you're overzealous on your rental increases. But I would say kind of that, you know, four to 5% range is what we're shooting for. And we're typically trying to do operationally what we're underwriting, right? So the goal is kind of long-term hold compounded growth year over year. And what you'll see is from a portfolio like ours and the national data is the the rent growth really comes from the in-place tenants, right? So you're going to have some tenants that are constantly cycling through, but it's the longer term tenants that, that are, you know, in place for two, three years is where that NOI growth comes from. 
Okay. And does your company mainly purchase existing properties or are you doing ground up? So we have done everything. I would say that our sweet spot is really secondary and tertiary markets focused on value add properties. If we were to buy 10 properties in a year, seven of them would most likely be value add. This year, we'll probably do one, maybe two ground up developments. There's been a large development cycle in storage for the last three years or so. So we have to be really thoughtful that the ground up development really has to be a home run for us to embark on that because it's a different level of risk than a cash flowing asset that we may do an expansion to. Got it. And are you operating a fund here? Or are you doing property specific? So we've done both. We've done individual syndications, Kyle, where we've taken an individual property to you know our high net worth accredited investors. We just closed our first fund at the beginning of 2020. The idea behind that really was as we got later in the cycle, we thought best to protect investors, our retail investors with the diversification of a fund versus a single asset. So if one market, you know, no different than individual stocks or mutual fund, if one market got hit, you know, we'd be able to buoy the performance of the fund by the other, you know, in this case, 10 properties. Our first fund ended up, it was a $47 million equity fund. And we had 11 properties that filled out that portfolio. So across four states. So we had some diversification, both property and market level so that, you know, hopefully investors have that safety with it. Do you see yourself just sticking with the fund going forward or going back and forth and doing property specific as well? Right now, yeah, I think it depends on who the investor is, Kyle, right? For our retail investors, I think we had a pretty enthusiastic response to the fund level. For the larger investors or institutional investors, typically they want to see a deal by deal portfolio and they'll essentially create their own fund for lack of a better term. So I think it depends on for our retail investors, that's probably how we'll bring things out to you know those individual accredited investors. But it's one way people can participate with us if we have a group that comes to us and says, hey, you know, we'd like to do something on a property by property basis. Okay, you know, we'll look at that too. I would say the best descriptor of us is we're opportunistic. So if we can make it make sense for us and our investors, we're going to do our best to make it work. Mm -hmm. And so with self-storage, I don't think there's Fannie and Freddie debt. I might be wrong. What type of lending is out there for self-storage? We don't have Fannie and Freddie, but we do have CMBS notes. So for stabilized assets, or at least pre-COVID, you could go out and get CMBS. Looks like that's coming back a little bit. A lot of our lending is done through regional local banks. We have a few life insurance companies that are doing some lending in the space. In the last five years, storage has gotten much more mainstream. With that, the lenders have come along. I do have to say, though, that for us, where we're operating in those secondary and tertiary markets, right? You know, usually the big lenders don't want anything to do with those markets, or they just don't understand them, right? So you know, they may look at us and say, where's East Denali, Georgia? Like, we don't want to be there. We want to be in Atlanta. And so many times the local lender who either lent on the project before we bought it, and maybe have had that project in their portfolio for five or 10 years, they're usually very apt to move that loan. So typically we have debt from a variety of different sources, depending on the market and our business plan. Perfect. All right. Lolita is going to take us into our final four questions. Are you ready? I'm ready. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by asset protection attorney, Wayne Patton. We all spend a lot of time thinking about ways to make more money, but how much time have you spent thinking about legal strategies to protect your wealth? Whether you're a professional, an investor, or an entrepreneur, you are at risk of being targeted in a lawsuit. 
Wayne is an attorney who specializes only in asset protection strategies, like the use of offshore trusts. If you'd like to learn more about how you can protect your assets, visit mwpatten.com or assetprotection.law. Mention this podcast and Wayne will waive his customary $750 initial consultation fee. Again, the website is mwpatten.com or assetprotection.law. Or you can call Wayne at 877-727-1092. Call now and get protected today. Right, Chris, what is the one tool you use in real estate investing that you could not do without? As an investor or a sponsor? As an investor. Well, I probably would have said an airplane. I'm a huge believer that, you know, when you're investing in real estate, you're essentially investing in the people. The real estate's critical, but, but certainly, you know, and I'm sure you guys can speak to this as well. You've probably seen deals, good deals with bad sponsors that have ruined the deal. And you've probably seen so-so deals that a sponsor's done okay with because it's a good group of people. I'm a believer that you're investing in the people first and the team. So for me, it was always about meeting the team and understanding what they wanted to do and did it align with me because look, you're asking someone to get married to you for, you know, with our projects, typically five to seven years. That's a long time if you don't like them or don't align with what their strategy is. So I would have said probably airplane. So I'd go visit maybe now it's zoom call. So we can do things like we're doing today. Okay. Can you tell us a story about your biggest mistake in real estate investing? And what is the main takeaway for our listeners? <laughs> How much more time do we have? I've made lots and we continue to, right? It's dynamic. We're always learning and the market is always changing. I think for me as an investor, it was probably starting with the duplexes. Great learning experience for me, but immediately relevant to it wasn't scalable. And people ask this question a lot, like, hey, Chris, how do I get started? And, you know, the answer that I have a lot of time is figure out what you want at the end and then reverse engineer your way back. And if I had done that appropriately when I started, I would have realized pretty quickly it would be really hard to do that by buying, you know, duplexes in upstate New York. So, you know, for me, I think the mistake was not starting with the end goal in mind and then backing into how we got there. What is it that you need to do now to grow your life to the next level? That's a good question. I would say that for me, it's about continuing to build relationships with people. I'm not sure how old you guys are, but I'm 40. And as I start to get older, the only thing that really seems to matter is the relationship piece. So I think for me, I really enjoy networking with like-minded individuals, people who see, you know, growth path. And it's not just for business, right? It's as a human being too. I mean, when I'm on my deathbed, I'm not going to care how much money I made or, you know, the stuff that I've had. It's going to be about the relationship piece. So I think now it's about focusing on, you know, connecting with people who see that vision and can go have those experiences with you. Absolutely. And finally, Chris, where can people find out more about you? Well, in regards to the Reliant and our platform, you can start at ReliantInvestments.com. It's a good website to get an overview of us as a company, track record, team. There's some educational content on there in regards to storage. You can also click with me personally, LinkedIn. We're fairly active on LinkedIn, post a fair amount of stuff there. My name is Chris with a K, so it's K-R-I-S-V-E-N-S-O-N. And if you search that with Reliant, you'll find me there. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for taking us through your real estate journey. And we really enjoyed having you on our show. Alrighty, guys. I appreciate it. I hope you have a good rest of the day. Stay safe. Thanks. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for listening. 
If you enjoyed the show, please go to iTunes and leave a rating and written review to help us grow and reach more listeners. You can also go to the Passive Income Through Multifamily Real Estate group on Facebook so you can connect with Kyle and Lolita and ask your questions that you want them to answer on the show. Subscribe too so that you can get the latest episodes. Lastly, to stay updated, head on over to aptcapitalgroup.com and sign up for the newsletter. If you're interested in partnering with Kyle and Lolita, sign up on the Contact Us page so you can talk to them directly. Thanks again for joining us. Be sure to tune in next week for another episode.